genes are part of it. And right now, we've identified 16 different viruses and bacteria that are associated with a higher risk of MS and other autoimmunity. Environmental factors, diet, exercise, stress, sleep, hormone balance, all of those interact. Part of this is that I think there's more embracing that lifestyle is a factor. So I personally have reworked the ketogenic diet to stress olive oil. That's a much more heart-friendly way to do ketosis. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready? To take charge of your existence and biohack your life, this show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends. It is such an honor to be back here today with Dr. Terry Walls. She is such a legend and such an inspiration. When you talk to her, you just really feel so inspired to take charge of your health. She gives agency to so many people and she's doing incredible clinical studies. So it was really an honor to have her back on the show for her current clinical study that she is recruiting people for. I definitely recommend if you fit the criteria to apply for that study. I also love this conversation so much that we're going to have her on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast for a listener Q&A. So if you have any questions for Dr. Walls after listening to today, please send them to me and I will include them in that show. Just email questions at ifpodcast.com for that. We talk about so many things in today's episode, including how you can use diet to address autoimmune conditions. We talk about what is the root cause of autoimmune conditions. We talk about how clinical trials are conducted. So many things that a lot of us probably don't think about. Low-dose naltrexone, which I know is a supplement a lot of you guys are interested in and that I personally take. We talk about the mitochondria, factors that affect aging, concerns with AI, how ketosis can potentially negatively affect lipid levels and the effects of olive oil in comparison to that. So many things. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. Definitely let me know in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. You can win a full beauty counter product from me if you find the pinned announcement post about this episode and just comment something you learned or something that resonated with you. Also check out my Instagram and find the Friday announcement post there. And again, comment to enter to win some beauty counter products from me. These show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash Terry Walls. That is T-E-R-R-Y. W-A-H-L-S. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market. 
ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which may 
mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this fabulous conversation with Dr. Terry Walls. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited and honored about the conversation that I am about to have. So it is with a repeat guest, and I love repeat guests because that's that's how you know that I just really, really adore their work and that the audience loves them. And really today, I am here with a legend. So I am back with Dr. Terry Walls. She was actually on this show almost to the day about two years ago. So we will put links in the show notes to that episode. In that episode, we heard all about her personal story with MS, all of the clinical research and work she was doing, and the incredible things that she's found with her dietary approach to not only addressing MS, but autoimmune conditions as well. So she is the author of The Walls Protocol, a radical new way to treat all chronic autoimmune conditions using paleo principles, and also The Walls Protocol Cooking for Life Cookbook. She's an Institute for Functional Medicine Certified practitioner and a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa, where she conducts a lot of clinical trials on MS. All you have to do is go to PubMed and Google her, and she has so much work. I was looking over all of it in preparation for this, all of the new things that she's published and worked on even since I last interviewed her. So I have so many things I'd love to do in today's episode. The backstory is I've been wanting to have her back anyways. I wanted to ask her some follow-up from our last episode. I 
wanted to get some specific listener questions that I had come in for her. And then her team actually reached out because she is currently conducting an incredible clinical trial. It's called Efficacy of Diet on Quality of Life and Multiple Sclerosis. You guys are still recruiting people for that study, right? Correct. It'll be one of the largest, longest studies that have been done. So we're looking for 156 people. We're at 96 right now. So that's very exciting. We've got 60 more. I'm thinking that we'll recruit through into 2024 and we will finish I'm guessing in the spring of 2024, we'll finish our recruiting then. Awesome. No, it's kind of funny because I was emailing your assistant. I don't think she told me right at the beginning that it was that like long and that large. So I kept asking her questions like, when will it be done? Like, can I get some information? And finally she was like, Melanie, this is a long study. Like, This is going for a long time. Yeah. I am just so excited to dive into all of that. To start things off though, a lot of my listeners are probably very familiar with your work. I mean, I've been following you for years and years. Your TED talk, was it in 2011, correct? November 11, 2011. Awesome. So long time. People are probably pretty familiar, but for those who are not, could you tell listeners, reintroduce yourselves to them about your personal story and why you're doing what you're doing today? I'm trained internal medicine doc, an academic physician. And then in 2000, I developed weakness in my left leg and went to see my neurologist and we started the workup. Now at that time, I'd already had 20 years of worsening electrical face pain. And so I'm like, oh, dear God, this is not good. And so actually I'm praying for a fatal diagnosis because I don't want to become disabled. And three weeks later, I hear multiple sclerosis. I do my research, find the best MS center in the country, see the, their best physician, take the newest drugs. And three years later, I'm in a tilt-recline wheelchair I'm taking mitoxantrone. I continue to get worse. I take Tizabri. I continue to get worse. I'm switched to Celsept. My face pains are relentlessly worse. I've already been on the paleo diet for three years, and I'm you know still going downhill. And then I ask myself, am I really doing all that I can? And that's when I start reading the basic science, animal models of MS, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, ALS. And I decide mitochondria dysfunction, drive disability. I create a supplement cocktail for my mitochondria. It slows my decline, and I'm super grateful. I discover a study using electrical stimulation of muscles. I ask my physical therapist if I can try that. He says it's for athletes, that yes, he can grow bigger muscles, but he's not sure my brain can talk to the muscles that he grows. But he does give me a test session. It hurts bad, really bad, but when it's over, I feel great. He says that's the endorphins. And so we add e-stim to my exercise. And I, you know, I'm so weak, I can only do 10 minutes of really a very basic mat exercise. Yet in my office, while I'm seeing patients with the residents, I'm in a zero-gravity chair with my knees higher than my nose. I have another one at home, and I take my meals, and I spend my time with my family like that. I can take a few steps using two walking sticks, and I'm beginning to have some brain fog. And my face pain is getting relentlessly worse. It's very clear to me because you know I've had 27 years of worsening neurologic problems that I'm on track to become bedridden by my illness, demented by my illness, and probably have my face pain turned permanently on. That's when I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine. I take their course on neuroprotection, more mitochondria stuff, 
and a longer list of supplements, which I add. And then I have a really big aha. What if I redesign the paleo diet that I've been on now for five years based on this list of supplements to figure out where they are in the food supply? So that's a couple more months of research. And I start this new way of eating December 26th. Now, at that time, I cannot sit up anymore, more than 10 minutes. Otherwise, I'm in that zero grav chair. Uh, as I said, I'm having brain fog. I can take just a few steps. My face pain is much more difficult to get turned off. I'm on maximum doses of gabapentin. And when it turns on, I go in to take solubendrol a gram every day for five days. So I start this new way of eating. In January, by the middle of January, I realized that my mental clarity is improving. Energy is a little bit better. And at the end of January, I uh, tell my family I, I want to try sitting in a regular chair for supper. And we do that, and it goes pretty well. And that's really a big deal, because I'm sitting at the table with my family for the meal. And then, next thing that happens is I decide to use my walking sticks, and I'm walking in the hallway at the hospital to mail a letter, which stuns you know my partners. And I start walking then in February, using two walking sticks, and then one, and then none. I decide on Mother's Day that I want to try riding my bike. So we have an emergency family meeting. Jackie tells my 16-year-old son, who's six foot five, Zach, you run alongside on the left. She tells my 13-year-old daughter, Zeb, you run alongside on the right, and she'll follow. And I get on my bike, and I bike around the block. And that big 16-year-old boy, he's crying. The 13-year-old girl, she's crying. Jackie's crying. And of course, I'm crying. And you know, that really changes how I think about disease and health. It will ultimately change the way I practice medicine, and it will ultimately change the focus of my research. And and I've made it my mission to teach others with progressive chronic diseases who've been told there's nothing they can do, that there's always stuff that we can do that may improve our symptoms, may slow the decline, and may surprise everyone with how much function you get back. Because, Melanie... I now hike in my neighborhood, bike, you know, hours. I jog in my neighborhood. I, I was recently out in Colorado. We went to the Rocky Mountain National Park, and I'm hiking up above the tree line three hours. It, it's really extraordinary. I'm not normal yet. My, my kids laugh. They'll say, I'll, I'll never be normal. But I am dramatically better than I was in 2007. So inspiring. I have so many questions. Okay, so one question to start. So you mentioned in your story just now, you you know, you listed out things, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, ALS, your experience with MS, all of these different autoimmune conditions and degenerative diseases that people get. What determines why people get certain things and like with an autoimmune approach and a, like your protocol and looking at the supplements and food and using all of that to address things, why or can it work for everything? Like, yeah, why do things manifest the way they do? Yes, it's wild. So as I was getting more and more disabled, I've had 
two relapses in my in my entire course that had a, a relapse affecting my right hand and my uh, right leg was weak. And in retrospect, I had an episode of dim vision in 1987. So there's two relapses. Otherwise, it's really been the slow, progressive decline. I, I thought, okay, as I'm reading the basic science, inflammation is not what's driving my disease. It's more neurodegeneration. So I wanted to read about neurodegeneration because that's what was driving my disability. And it, and it was a lot of work because I had to learn how to read all this basic science, all this biochemistry. But I always came back to mitochondrial dysfunction uh, it drives brain atrophy, spinal cord atrophy, and that probably, what can I do to improve mitochondrial function? You know, and so gradually I, I'm adding more and more supplements to help pathways in the mitochondria. And now as I get better at biochemistry and I'm looking at these great, big, beautiful biochemical pathway maps, one of the things that you see is that it's so deeply interconnected to keep all of the constituent parts within safety parameters, you know, mostly our electrolytes. And we have to keep that in a very relatively tight range so we stay alive, otherwise we die. And we have all these enzymes that facilitate this chemistry that is so deeply interconnected. What I want your listeners to know is it's the health behaviors that we have, how we act every day, you know, what we eat, what we do, what we think, our time in light, our time sitting, our time exercising, that speak to those biochemical pathways. And all of our behaviors are either behavior by behavior, nudging the pathways in a more disease-promoting way or a more health-promoting way of functioning, which is why, you know, I am just like so super optimistic that always, whatever patient I see, that there are things that I can help you do to nudge some of your health behaviors into a little bit more health promoting, and it will percolate through all of that rich biochemistry and let it work just a little bit more correctly. Yeah, I love that. It gives people so much agency and I think we know we learn more and more every day the power of epigenetics and you know the role of diet and lifestyle on everything. Are genetics are they necessary but not sufficient? Like can anybody get MS or do you still have to have a genetic piece? So and we'll talk about MS. Well this the sequence looks like this. You have genetics and there're probably 300 to 400 genes that we've identified that increase your risk for MS. Now, for the vast majority of these genes, the amount of risk is about a half percent to maybe a percent, maybe 2%. There are a couple of genes that have a bigger impact, maybe a 10 or 15%. But the vast majority, it's very tiny, and the vast majority of people with that gene will not get MS. And we have people who are identical twins. One gets it, and, and they were raised in the same household. One gets the disease, one does not. We have identical twins raised not in the same household. And then you have sibling studies and parent studies. So we know siblings and parents, you know, do have a higher risk. But so genes are part of it. Then the next thing that needs to happen is uh, an infection that you don't completely clear 
or clear correctly. And right now, we've identified 16 different viruses and bacteria that are associated with a higher risk of MS and other autoimmunity. And the reality, Melanie, is nearly everyone has been exposed to at least one of these 16 and probably many of these 16 microbes. But still, the vast majority don't get MS or an autoimmune problem. So there's other factors involved. And my colleagues in the MS world would say, we don't know what they are. And my response was, okay, but we know what the factors are that are associated with good health. So let's work on using those to improve the health of the individual. At the very least, you are addressing the comorbidities. And what we see is reduced fatigue, higher quality of life, better motor function, better thinking function, better MRIs. And that, you know, people get closer and closer to normal functioning. That infection concept. Step one is the gene. Step two is the infection. Step three is all the environmental stuff. Wow. Okay. I'm just like very shocked because I feel like I don't hear people talking about that. Does that infection step, is that specific to MS or for other conditions as well? Yeah, it's probably true for every autoimmune condition that you have a genetics, then you have an infection that you don't properly clear, and then the environmental factors, toxin exposures, diet, exercise, stress, sleep, hormone balance, microbiome, all of those interact. We have, you know, a progressively more severe disruption or worsening of our health behaviors. People are sleep are sleeping less. There's more stress, more conflict, more hormone disruption. We don't have enough light. The quality of our food is declining. So we have all of those insults that accelerate the disease process. I was at the Consortium of MS Centers, uh, which is the annual international meeting where the clinical people who take care of MS patients, the researchers who do clinical research, it's not about the mouse people, it's, it's about the people who's, who do clinical research on humans, we're all there. The drug companies are there, patient advocacy groups are there, and then some MS people are there. So they have a couple thousand people there. And what was so remarkable, I started going to this meeting five years ago, and I was the only one with a research poster talking about food, just me. This year, there were many more people with research about food, several oral presentations and symposium about diet, and researchers who were talking about clinical trials and aging MS, molecular pathways, et cetera. These PhDs were all saying diet and lifestyle, particularly diet and exercise, are, are just so important. That MS is a disease of accelerated aging. And I've been talking about that actually for years. And that, and they said, we don't really have anything to fix that. Metformin, some very interesting animal model studies. And then there was diet and exercise. And I'm like, yes. And in lecture after lecture, people were, were talking about the molecular mechanisms, potentially some drugs, and then saying, and yes, there is diet and exercise. They might, might have thrown in stress reduction and sleep. So super interesting. We're certainly making progress. 
clinicians are being told that you got to talk to your patients about diet and exercise, that that should be an adjunct to every treatment conversation that's happening. Well, one more question about the infection, the step two in the, the process. Is it the actual infection itself that is causing the continued problem, or is it the infection's effect on the immune system and how it modulates the immune system? It's the infection's impact on the immune system. And what I want your listeners to know is we had thought, I'm in my 60s, so when I went to medical school, I was taught that we're sterile. The urine is sterile, the blood is sterile, my bones are sterile, my brain's sterile, that, you know, we're, we're sterile. We're not. Now that we're, we have this more sophisticated looking at our tissues, including our bloodstream, our spinal fluid, our brain, our bones, turns out we're packed with organisms, even in the areas that I thought were sterile when I was young. It isn't that wild. That I think it's, there's a debate, is it a quarter or a third of our DNA is borrowed stuff from viruses? And that when we get infected with a virus, it, it's never completely gone. We keep it under control with our immune system. We keep those viruses in our brain under control with our immune system. We keep the bacteria load in our body, in our blood, in our bones, in our lungs, <laughs> under control with our immune system. And as we age, you know, it begins faltering around, in men, faltering around age 40, and women, once we go through menopause, you know, at whatever age that happens, our immune cells begin to age. They can't control the viruses, the bacteria, as effectively, which is why pneumonia becomes a bigger problem when we're older, why bladder infections become kidney infections, become bloodstream infections when we're older, why we get demented as we get older, and we may begin to have more confusion and that we may begin to have some encephalitis or activation of the brain infections when we're older. I've heard oftentimes people will say that when you're really stressed, you get sick, and it's because it's something that's already inside of you? Absolutely. When you are ill, you sleep more. And, uh, you know, I tell folks when you're ill, go to bed and sleep. That's your, your immune cells are much more effective with good sleep. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. 
You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. That is so fascinating. I was wondering if there was an update because when we talked, you know, over two years ago, we were talking about if there were mitochondria in the myelin and you said they were doing research on that. Are there any updates on that? It's super interesting. There are mitochondria in the myelin, which helps support the energetic needs of myelin in transmitting the information down the axon, which is the wiring between nerve cells, requires a lots of energy. And so, yes, mitochondria are there. You know, as we get, as we get older, you know, the brain will use glucose to, you know, make the ATP run the chemistry of life. Apparently the brain gets less, gradually less effective at using that glucose as we get older. But we, we can continue to use ketone bodies, which are fats, and it's one of the reasons why people who have cognitive decline often do a little better and wake up when we put them on a ketogenic diet. Actually, speaking to that, because I was looking at some of the studies and there's a lot of studies looking at your dietary approach versus the Swank diet, which seems to be radically different. Why do you think those both have shown effects? Dr. Snetzler and her team did what's called a network meta-analysis. That It's a way of looking at... So a meta-analysis combines multiple studies and it uses something called the standardized mean difference to show in the 95% confidence interval to show that something is helpful or harmful compared to control or compared to another randomized arm. And in this study, they looked at, let's see, low-fat diets, and it was either the Swank or McDougal, the Mediterranean diet, the Paleolithic diet, and and they were all our studies, so really the Walls diet, a anti-inflammation diet that was out of Iran, fasting patterns, which were time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting. There was a fasting-mimicking diet and a ketogenic diet. And then usual diet, which was, you know, just eat what you normally eat. There were 608 people in the study when you combine everything. And the calorie restriction lowered, people did worse on calorie restriction. And I'm not surprised because you're, you're, you're eating 25, you know, only 75% of your caloric requirement and people generally uh, have less energy on that. So there was a little bit of improvement for anti-inflammation, ketogenic diets. However, the confidence interval crossed over into favoring the control for the 
low-fat diet, the Mediterranean diet, and the paleo diet, the confidence interval was clearly on the side favoring the intervention. So they were all good for reducing fatigue. And the paleo diet was 50% larger effect size than either Mediterranean or the low-fat diet. And then for improving quality of life as measured by physical health or mental health, the paleo diet and the Mediterranean diet improved quality of life. And the paleo diet was twice as effective as the Mediterranean diet. So these are all pilot studies. We need to have longer studies long that preferably go two years, also include MRI data. So we get, no, can people sustain it for that long? And if you look at the MRI, that'll be really interesting. I think it'll be hard for any diet study to show a difference in relapse rate because the drugs are so effective. The, the drug When people take drugs, they do a really good job of stopping new enhancing lesions and reducing relapses. But they don't do a very good job on brain volume. Gotcha. Was this the 2021 review of 32 articles? I was reading one where you were talking about how they were excluding studies and also making assumptions about the patients, like interpreting data. So this paper came out in 2023. There were a couple of other meta-analyses combining diet studies, and, you know, and consistently what the meta-analyses that look at food plans find that if you adopt a diet, and it could be a variety of diets, you have reduced fatigue, fatigue improved quality of life, and that the standard usual diet leads to worse fatigue and worse outcomes. Now, we did publish a study in 21 that compared the Swank diet and the Walls diet. Is that what you're referring to? I had two. I had one, a review, and I think it was a review article of a meta-analysis, and you were talking about how they excluded certain studies and how they also made assumptions that patients couldn't really interpret the data or stick to the studies, to the diets, and you were saying in it how MS patients are very interested in their health and are it was very empowering <laughs> that they are, or go ahead. It's super interesting. Study after study with MS patients have found that the vast majority are now taking vitamin D in a B vitamin in fish oil. And patients started doing vitamins, fish oil, and vitamin D before their neurologist routinely were telling them to do that. And the vast majority are making some dietary changes. And of course, there's a variety of opinions. Do you do the Swank diet, the Walls diet, the Mediterranean diet. Some folks are pretty impassioned about doing some variation of a vegetarian or a vegan diet. It's people have, you know, strong feelings about which diet they, they want to explore. I think many, not all, but many MS patients are like, so what is it that I could be doing? And I want to be doing something because this is a pretty terrible disease and I'd like to keep working. I'd like to keep you know, playing with my kids. I want to be able to coach my daughter's volleyball team or my son's, you know, football team. And I got to be doing what I can to be able to stay engaged in my life. Actually, does that, because that's a big question I had about your study that you're working on now or your trial. 
because it says in the recruitment information that people need to be open to being assigned to any one of the three diets. And maybe you can talk about what those are. Is that hard to find people that are open to doing any one of the three? Of course. So part of that is because I'm being so successful in going on these podcasts, telling everyone like, oh my God, you got to be, you have to fix your diet. You can't have a terrible diet because the standard American diet will accelerate your disease. And that message is getting out. So people want to do a diet. And every diet study that anyone ever does, I assure you, we all run into the same thing. People who are willing to do a diet study, because it's a lot of work to say, okay, I'm going to change what I eat, give up familiar recipes, patterns. I'm going to start eating new foods, give up things that I like so I can follow the pattern you want me to follow. That's a lot of work. And so if I'm willing to do that and I get randomized to control, I'll be like, well, I don't like that. (laughs) I want to, you know, I want to do the work. So we're very careful to explain that all three groups have a really vital role to play, that we need a control arm because that makes the strongest evidence that diet matters. And that I know full well the control arm's going to do a better job than the standard American diet. And that's okay. And we're going to give them little tips based on what's available with dietary guidelines. We have little cooking videos, cooking recipes that we'll give every month to the control arm. The two intervention arms, one will be the time-restricted olive oil ketogenic arm. The other is the modified paleo elimination diet, which is what we studied in that study that compared swank versus walls. And they will get sessions with the dietitians and they get uh, access to a monthly support call. And I assure everyone that yes, I expect all three groups to improve and that we will be looking at patient reported outcomes in terms of mood, fatigue, energy, and clinical outcomes, walking, hand, vision function. And we're looking at brain volume. In that I expect all three groups will have very few relapses because the drugs are so effective and that we know if you improve your diet, you'll have fewer relapses. But that brain volume in people with MS declines every year at about 1% per year, which is why we have higher rates of frailty and nursing home care at earlier ages and higher rates of earlier cognitive decline and job loss because we're having difficulty with our thinking. Healthy rates of brain aging is less than 0.3% per year. So what I think, it's not my primary outcome. My primary outcome is change in quality of life. But a really interesting secondary outcome is change in clinical function. But I think the most interesting question is, how many people can I get to healthy rates of aging? Because that, uh, I think, is a, a great way for me to predict who's going to be at risk for early nursing home care, early frailty, early wheelchair dependence. Because if your brain is shrinking at 1% per year or 2% or 3% per year, you are definitely on track to become disabled far earlier. For the aging piece, are you doing any testing of biological age testing or genetics or telomeres or... You know, I wish we could. We we don't have that in the budget. Although I, I will tell you, you know, we keep writing grants all the time. And now that I've settled on accelerated aging is another mechanism that drives disability. And that I think the fact that 
you know, clinically, when I look at my patients at the VA, when I was still seeing patients there and in my own practice, we see people youth and by about 15 years. And when I looked at my telomeres, I was 15 years biologically younger than my chronologic age. So we're writing grants now that include a look at aging, aging markers. And I'm also now this winter or this summer, we are doing a freezer analysis. So in every one of my clinical trials, I've been collecting blood and freezing it. And so now we're using some money. We've gotten money from some donors that we can use to pay for the analysis of the molecules. Oh, wow. That's exciting. That'll be very exciting. I know so little about the <laughs> logistics and the protocols about all of this. So are you able to partner? Because there's so many like commercial companies now doing biological age type tests. Can you ever partner with them? You know, when you do research, you have to get people willing to pay for it. So when you're doing the trial, I have to be able to pay my staff, you know, cover those expenses. And then we freeze stuff. And now to analyze the stuff in the freezer, I have to pay for it in some capacity. In finding commercial companies so far, they might give me a somewhat better price, but I, but they won't give it to me for free. So I still have to find money to pay for it. So if there are any listeners listening to this podcast who would really like me to investigate that aging piece and would be interested uh, you can reach out to us and you go to my website, terrywalls.com. There, there are places you can contact my team and let us know that you're, you have either a, a disease state you'd like me to investigate or a molecular pathway that you analyze and you would like us to analyze some of our freezer specimens. We'd love to talk. We'll put all this information in the show notes. Going back to what you were talking about with the three diets, just to help encourage people to sign up, because like we just talked about, I know people have concerns about being assigned to the, the standard American diet or the control aspect. If you're on the control diet, you get to eat what you want. As I was going to ask, can you eat whatever you want? <laughs> you get to eat what you want. And we have people who are following intermittent fasting, already find a keto diet or a Mediterranean diet or you know, one version of the walls diets, or they may be a vegetarian. We, we tell them, look, you have to be willing to eat meat or fish, at least if you get randomized into the paleolithic arm. And if you are following a ketogenic diet, you can enroll, but you have to be willing. If you get randomized to the keto, to the paleo diet that you will, in fact, follow the paleo diet. And if you're following the paleo diet, you'll have to be willing to like, okay, if I'm randomized to keto, I will switch to the keto diet. And if you're following the Mediterranean diet or the you know intermittent fasting diet, you can come in if you're following another diet, as long as you're willing to be randomized. And if you're assigned to one of the inter intervention diets, that you will follow the diet to which you've been assigned. I explained that you know, this, this is how you build the strongest evidence. We have done other studies that are called quasi-experimental, where people choose. And we just recently did a study that looked at people who have declined disease-modifying drug treatment. And we're going to teach them basically how to do the WALS protocol. We taught them a diet. We taught a stress reduction technique and a exercise program. And we followed them for a year. 
And we had people who were in the standard of care who were getting DMT, so they got to eat and do what they wanted. We were just ready to start that study when the pandemic came upon us. So I had to quick reimagine the study as a virtual only, and we did just questionnaires and collected the medical records and abstracted the medical records and figured out how many people are having relapses or worsening during that time. We're analyzing that data and we're writing up that manuscript. Now that's called a quasi-experimental, and we were looking, the, the original intent of the study was to say, this was the health behaviors without drugs would be not inferior to the, sta- the standard of care, which is you take drugs and you get to do whatever you want for your diet and self-care program. And we have some very exciting results, which I can't really tell you about other than say, we're working on the manuscript, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get it, get it from our editors. And it's usually about a, a year from the time you, you have it written, you go through editing, you submit it, you go back and forth with the journals and you finally find a home. So hopefully in about 12 months, we'll have a home for that, for that manuscript. So many exciting things. Is it a concern? Well, I guess it would be a good thing, but you'll hear about studies where one of the arms is so effective that it's morally they can't continue the study. Is that a concern for you? So this is called a data safety monitoring board. And we report out every six months, I I meet with them and they uh, look at the data. It's diet ABC. We look at the data for adverse events and for outcomes. And if there are serious adverse events or dramatic differences in, in terms of improvement, then you uh, yes, you do stop early. I would be quite surprised. You know, thus far, we're a year into this. We don't have the adverse events that we're seeing are things that you anticipate from the natural history of the disease. And then there are adverse lab values that you see that are the things that you anticipate from taking the disease-modifying drug treatments that can cause suppression of the white blood cells, damage to kidneys and livers, so the enzymes get you know just a little bit elevated. And so then I, you know, when I'm filling out those adverse event forms, then I send them off to the neurologist, who's the medical monitor, who says, "Oh yeah, that's what we expect." And if it's not what he expects, you know, then we would have to deal with that. But yes, you you always have a safety board that keeps an eye on your clinical outcomes and your adverse events to be sure that patients are not being harmed. And on the flip side, not necessarily for this study, just hypothetically, if you were doing a study and one of the interventions was so effective that you had to stop it, how would you feel and what would you do? That, that does happen. That has happened, that studies have been stopped early because there was so much benefit. They're like, okay, we don't have to go any longer because the level of benefit is so great. We don't want the control arm to be deprived. Those studies get published early, and they're a big splash in the news, usually, and a big splash at the scientific meeting. That would be pretty wonderful. My postdoc that I would let pub, you know, present that would be thrilled. And of course, I would be thrilled as well. Putting that out to the universe that that moment happens. How do you account for, you know, if there's multiple factors, either in this study or other studies you've done, where there's, you know, lifestyle intervention, maybe e or supplements, 
with diet? How do you account for knowing what to attribute to what? So, you know, the very first study that we did, well, actually, the fir- my first paper was a case report on me with my treating medical team. Second paper was a case series. And then the third and fourth papers were the multimodal intervention, which basically was to see could other people do this very complicated regimen that I use for my recovery, diet, supplements, a mantra-based meditation, exercise, electrical stimulation of muscles. And, and people were severely fatigued with progressive MS. You know, it's, It was a big question. Could they even do all this stuff? Would they be willing? And the shocking thing was, yep, they were willing. They were very, they were very compliant with doing the diet, adding all the all those vegetables, taking away gluten, dairy, and eggs. They were compliant on ninety two percent of the days. They were not quite as compliant on the the mantra based meditation, but still, thirteen minutes a day was the average. They exercised, I think, twenty five minutes a day was the average, and another thirty minutes a day of electrical stimulation. That's the feasibility part. The safety, we lost one person out of 20 who had continued cognitive decline, so she was no longer competent to give consent, so she was withdrawn at six months. So uh, that's the safety part. Then we look at the effect size, and what we saw was that as a group, fatigue went down on fatigue severity down to 2.38. The um, clinical difference is 0.45, so that's a pretty substantial reduction in fatigue, quality of life score in the short form 36 went up by 17 points for general health and I think 15 points for energy. And the clinical effect size for that's measurably different is five. So again, a large difference. And for motor function, walking speed, So how fast you can walk, a 25-foot walk. What is remarkable here, Melanie, is that you anticipate a 10 to 15% worsening that is slowing of walking speed each year when you're in that progressive phase. As a group, walking speed was unchanged. And half of the individuals, walking speed was remarkably better. People hated that study. We got panned. We had a very hard time getting it reviewed and getting it published. It took me two years to find a journal, two and a half years. Then that was of the 10. And then it took another year to get the next paper out, which I had 20 in it. And part of the problem was people said, we don't know what helped. And I'm like, but we helped. We can then begin to break down that, yes, exercise is really helpful. E-STEM is helpful. Meditation is helpful and diet is helpful. So after that, I began studying just diet. I'm now back to writing grants that combine diet plus exercise in progressive MS. There have been more studies showing that, yes, exercise is super helpful, even for people with progressive MS. Diet is super helpful. We think you can get an even bigger effect when you combine diet and exercise. And then what we'll do is, in the grants we're writing now, is that we'll look at the molecular markers of aging. So basically, try all of these things that work, and then next step, you can look closer and figure out you know, what specifically might be contributing to what. Part of this 
is that I think there's more embracing that lifestyle is a factor. We've we've done a whole lot of good in the NIH with understanding biochemistry by using worms, flies, mice, bacteria, yeast, mice, rats, dogs, primates. It, because there's a tremendous amount of overlap in the biochemistry of life between all of those species. As I mentioned earlier, that biochemistry is deeply interconnected. I, I think the fact that this summer we're going to be analyzing more of our freezer to get at the molecules that change and speak a little more clearly that in our grant proposals that, yes, we don't study mice and knock up mice to do one chemical pathway. We study the whole person. The chemical pathways are deeply interconnected. We're going to do diet and exercise together and see how aging, I think, is going to be a wonderful model for us to investigate. But we also, now now that we're good, really good at big data and artificial intelligence, we can begin to look at metabolomics that look at about 1,500 different metabolites to say, when we did intervention A and intervention B, the metabolites changed over the year or over two years in this way. And so it now we, we finally are getting the big data and the artificial intelligence to be able to analyze the changes in that whole biochemical pathway matrix a little more effectively. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, 
It's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time? That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. With AI, I'm glad you brought that up. I actually just did a whole show on this. How do you feel about black box answers? So basically where AI, you know, gives a interpretation or a result, but we actually don't know how it came to that. Well, I don't know how this is all going to work its way out. My basic science colleagues and I are looking at our some of our microbiome data, our clinical outcome data, and some metabolite data. And we're using artificial intelligence to analyze this stuff. I'm going to be able to speak more eloquently to it in the future. But even in our preliminary analysis, because we're looking at, can I have clues to know who, who would respond better to the Swank diet and who would respond better to the Walls diet based on the metabolites that people had at baseline and the microbiome at baseline? And because I know who, who did really well on Swank and who did terrible on Swank. And I know who did really well on walls and who did terrible on walls. And so a, a really interesting question to me is, because I, I think ultimately, while I'll eventually be able to see you, Melanie, I'll get a little urine from you, some saliva from you, and some blood from you. Because saliva would be a lot more convenient than having it make you go poop for me. But, you know, if you could poop, that would be better. And we analyze all that. And then you come back and I can say, based on your genes, on your metabolites, your microbiome, this diet, will you'll probably actually do better on Swank. Or you'll do better on Mediterranean. Or you'll do better on ketogenic. Or you're going to do better on paleo. Because I, the, the, we're never going to have one diet that's perfect for everyone. 
That's that's just uh, there's never going to be one diet that is the best diet. I'll be able to tell you which diets that you would do the best on, but then I also have to ask you, given your family and your cultural preferences, that this was the best diet, but is that a diet that you could do? And if that's not the best diet, I'll, I'll probably in my report be able to say, okay, you could do really great on diet one, you could do okay on diets two and three, but you would get a lot worse on diets four and five. So I could give you that information that you could go home with your family and have a big conversation like, okay, we're not quite ready to do diet one. We know now to avoid diets four and five because they would be bad for me. And we have to think more about whether it's going to be diets two or three. That will come. I don't know how quickly that will come. I'm guessing probably in five years. But again, that's just a big guess. Also similar to that, this is the direction I thought you were going, but you were talking about having the data and then recommending a diet to somebody based on what they might be appropriate for. Do you think they'll use AI to select patients more suitable for diets and studies in the first place? And if so, would that bias studies? I'm wondering if like the drug companies will start using AI to find patients that will more likely respond to what they're trying to test. I think, and I think that's a fair question. Hopefully our drugs, all of our pharmacologic people will use AI to help know which patients are more likely to have an adverse event taking their drugs so they can say, nope, you should not take this. And which drugs are best for that drug. Hopefully we will be in a position for all the prescribers to know, for me to be able to know based on you, which drugs are best for you or not. So yes, will the people prescribing someday, and will this be good or not, that we come in and we get genetically profiled, microbiome profiled, and our my clinician would, would have that, and they would be able to make some more, much more personalized recommendations. And how comfortable would we feel about that? I mean, I don't know. Would I would I feel comfortable about that? Being genetically profiled and having my microbiome profiled, so it's uniquely me in the system. How comfortable would we feel about that? It's a really good question. And it's something, especially with this audience, with biohackers, I feel like they're at the forefront of people who are really looking at that type of data in themselves anyways. It could be a profoundly helpful tool for me to know what supplements would be really good for me, you know, hot and cold be really good for me, what diets would be best. It would be, I could certainly jump my health further along. Does that make me more vulnerable in in ways that I'm uneasy? I don't really know. I, I think people will have, maybe very excited about that and will feel perfectly fine. And then there'll be others who will, will feel anxious and uneasy about other people, like other people having your fingerprints. Do you want that? On the other hand, we all get on social media, post ourselves, get our face tagged, and, and we have become okay with our face as an ID. <laughs> I haven't set that up. Every time it asks me, I'm like, no. But as a society. But as a society, yeah, no, completely. As a society, we have all been willing to get our faces tagged. 
It's so true. You're tapping into a just a visceral experience I've had through my own biohacking journey because I do engage with all these platforms and it's a ton of data collection. And I have wondered about, you know, what you're talking about specifically. And then I wonder in the future, will this data be used? You can think about the ovulation tracking. Wonderfully helpful in, in uh, many ways. But I also know that there are women who've turned that off because they are now feeling like, oh my God, I, I, I don't want any app tracking my periods. That makes them feel, you know, vulnerable now. And so it, it was a helpful tool that suddenly got politicized and some women are very uncomfortable about that. It's an interesting time we're living in. I'll be very curious to see, to see where this all leads. So going back, another question about your study, the one, the big one that we're talking about. So if, for example, let's say with the results that you find that either the modified paleo elimination diet or the time-restricted olive oil keto diet is more, you know, substantially more effective, I want to like hone in on that time-restricted piece. Yeah. So let me explain the ketogenic diet. Most ketogenic diets lean way into eggs, lean way into dairy fat, uh, a lot of cheese, a lot of whole milk, lots and lots of saturated fat, and may drive cholesterols very, very high as a result. And in fact, they're at the six-month mark the, in the keto studies, the cholesterols were quite high. And I'm doing the study for two years, and we know that I think dairy is a big, for some, a very pro-inflammatory food. So I personally have reworked the ketogenic diet to stress olive oil. And you could do a ketogenic diet with MCT oil. You get to have more carbs and you get more ketone bodies, but that can also drive your cholesterol through the roof. And we've known for a long time that olive oil lowers the risk of heart disease, lowers the risk of cognitive decline. So instead of using two to four tablespoons Actually, it's four to six tablespoons of butter every day. We use four to six tablespoons of olive oil every day. And we restrict the carbs to about 50 grams and about 100 grams of protein. And that's what I do clinically in my practice. People, their lipids don't go haywire. Some folks have to reduce their, reduce their carbs lower than 50 in order to get into ketosis. That, and remember, I'm an internal medicine doc, that's a much more heart-friendly way to do ketosis than the dairy way. Because it's harder to get into ketosis with olive oil, we do time-restricted eating. So there's a six to eight-hour eating window. And you can do that by either having breakfast and moving your evening meal earlier into, into the afternoon. Or what most, peop- what most of our participants have done is they skip breakfast and have lunch and an early supper. Then we just have them check their ketones before lunch, and the vast majority get into ketosis. I'm so surprised because, like I said, I'm also the host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I don't think in the six years we've been doing that show, we've had a discussion about people having more issues getting into keto with olive oil versus the saturated fats. Why do you think that is? Well, because they don't think about it. They just like, okay, I don't worry about a cluster of 300 or 400. It's going to be okay. 
I love my butter. I love my cream. If, if you look at the ketogenic diets, they're all about eggs. They're about dairy fats. I'm probably the only one that I'm aware of that says you could you can do a ketogenic diet lean lean into olive oil instead. But you were saying that you find it's harder for people with olive oil to get into ketosis. So if 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 you do MCT oil, then you can have a 70% fat. If you're doing ghee or olive oil or any other fat, now it's it, you don't have all that MCT oil, it's going to be harder to get into ketosis. So the MCT makes it easier. You can probably get 80 grams of carbs and still have ketones. If you're doing butter, ghee, cream, or olive oil, it's going to be less than 50. Maybe you have to go less than 40. You might even have to go less than 30. And you know that is really hard for people. It's much harder. And so... We made it easier to say, you know what, we'll combine it. We'll add in time-restricted feeding, and we will add the olive oil. So the goal with the time-restricted feeding is to encourage the, the ketosis aspect. What about the potential other benefits from that time restriction that might not be due to ketosis? Would that be a situation where... You might do a follow-up study. Are you interested in the other benefits of time-restricted feeding? Well, I think time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting are really great. These are all hormetic challenges. And if some people want to do in our arm, decide, you know what, it's just simpler for me to have one meal a day. You know, that's fine. We don't prohibit that. And, you know, clinical trials with people, we're messy. We get to eat what we want. We get to you know, have fights with our spouses, we get to have work crises or not, or have everything going well or not. It's always a little bit messier than doing a study with mice. How do you um, help with that, with compliance? Is it going to be people just reporting compliance? So the ideal approach to really understand the impact of nutrition is that you do a metabolic ward study, you put people in the inpatient, you control all of their food, and then you know precisely what happened. And, and those are very expensive and usually very short, maybe a week. If you're doing a study that's two years, then people are going to be free living. And these are the limitations of the study. It also means that it's going to be more generalizable in terms of what people can really do. But then you still have to acknowledge the limitations of the study. And of course, one of the limitations is that we screen thousands of people to, to get the 96 that are already in my study. So you're screening thousands of people to find out that they have MS or don't have MS. They're willing to be, do a diet study or not. They're willing to come to Iowa and be uh, part of our study or not. And so our people are, are much more motivated than the person who's going to go in to see the neurologist in clinical practice. But that is the nature of clinical trials is you work hard to get a, um, a study going, recruit people who are motivated, willing to do the work, willing to make these changes. And you're trying to change uh, clinical practice so that the neurologist, when they're seeing people, and they're saying, okay, you've got MS. I want you on a DMT. We'll get that sorted out. I'm going to send you to a dietitian because we need to improve your diet. 
I'll send you to physical therapist because exercise is really your friend. We got to figure out how to get that into your daily life. And I'm going to send you to my licensed social worker who's going to teach you, work with you to find a meditation practice and make sure your sleep's right. So that they have a whole plan of people who are going to help them get their modifiable lifestyle factors improved according to what they and their family can do. Because the neurologist isn't going to know how to do any of that stuff. But I just want the neurologist to say, this is really important and I'm going to send you to other professionals who will help you succeed at making this work for you. Awesome. We talked about this in the last episode. So this is for people with the um, specific type of MS where they're going into remission. Yeah, relapse and remitting. Yes. So some people have MS and don't have symptoms. Is that correct? Well, so here here's the evolution of uh, MS. You start out with what are called prodrome symptoms, and there's a collection of symptoms that we know that those people who have these symptoms are at much higher risk of developing MS or some autoimmune condition in the future, including RA, systemic lupus, inflammatory bowel disease. And you might have that those prodrome symptoms for five to 10 years. Then if you got an MRI for an unrelated issue, perhaps you had a car accident, hit your head, and you get a scan of your brain, and they say, oh, you've got some demyelinating lesions, but you don't have any symptoms, and you don't have any neurologic symptoms. So they just say, they call that radiologically isolated syndrome. And then, so now I've got one spot on my head uh, on the MRI, no neurosymptoms. And maybe in the next five years, I have my first episode of neurologic symptoms that match somewhere. And then that's called clinically isolated syndrome. And then the next five to 10 years, then I may have a second episode of radiologic, of neurologic symptoms in a, that affect a different part of my brain. Because you have to have two episodes separated by time and space. So symptoms in two different locations, lesions at two different locations at different times. Now I have a diagnosis of MS. And that time span can be five to 20 years. Oh, wow. Long time. So, with the findings, and it kind of relates to all of this with the, the different autoimmune conditions that can manifest, when you have the findings from your study, do you think they can, quote, automatically apply to other autoimmune conditions that people have, or does it really? Well, my, my, sci- my clinical f- conventional folks would say it has to be disease specific. My functional medicine folks will say, of course they overlap. Having, having said that, I, I also see more of my conventional folks, rheumatology, OBGYN, psychiatry, calling me and talking with me saying, you know, I'm using your approach in my clinic and patients are doing better. We're getting more pregnancies. My rheumatologic patients are doing much better. The GI patients are doing better. So You know, 15 years ago, I was really considered pretty woo-woo, crazy, very eccentric here at the university. And now, many more people who were so mad at me for using the same thing for everything are now saying like, oh my God, you were so brilliant. That's amazing. Like I said, I had listener questions. So for example, when I was asking for questions for you, I got so many questions asking about specific advice for all of these, you know, different conditions. So like, 
so I don't, I'm not asking for an answer, but just in general, like, like Teresa said, do you have a protocol for Parkinson's? And then Lori said, what are your suggestions for postmenopausal women with Crohn's disease and dietary changes? And then Aretta said, what can I do for microscopic colitis? That's not a result of NSAIDs. So when people do have different diseases, do you suggest people making tweaks? You know, I think it comes down to uh, a reminder for everyone that we are alive because of self-correcting biochemistry. And my big aha was, okay, so we don't know what the real cause of MS is. I'm going to do everything that I possibly can that supports better health. And that was my, and when I, when I started doing that, it was about slowing my decline because I had, you know, I wanted to walk as long as I could. I want to use my hands as long as I could. I want to be able to wipe my own butt as long as I could. And what I discovered is if we do that, because life is self-correcting chemistry, our chemistry slowly self-corrects. So for the person with Parkinson's, with cognitive decline, with early Alzheimer's, with ALS, with Huntington's disease, my advice to you is to all of them, very different diseases, is look at your diet and lifestyle, work with whatever professionals you can find to help you exercise more effectively, manage your stress more effectively, sleep more effectively, have the highest quality diet that will work for you and your family. And yes, and you know, people know I love the paleo diet. I, th- I think it's a, the closest match to what our genes expect. Now, you may do well with getting a food sensitivity test so we could really personalize it and have a temporary restriction for about six months, and then we can you know, gradually liberalize it again. And yes, I could test your blood to know that you're low on certain vitamins that I have to restore, get back into optimal range for a time, and that there may be microbiome things that I'm going to do and address with a variety of diet changes. But we don't have to make a protocol for each individual condition. Instead, think of this as I'm looking at a variety of functional assessments of your nutrition, your microbiome, your how your mitochondria are working. And then I'm going to help you get, nudge things in a more correct biochemical pathways. And you practically check on, on your functional labs. But the vast majority of work are pretty close to the same. It's getting your diet as optimized as you and your family can manage getting your self-care routines optimized, sort of step-by-step. And I need to do this at a pace that will work for you. You know, I I had to retire from the VA because I want to spend more time in my research. And what I discovered is when I retired from the VA, I shifted my self-care routine. And so now, pretty consistently, I have a two-hour routine that I can do every morning. But I, I was able to do that only because I retired from the VA and I rearranged my schedule with the university so I could let that happen. Hi, friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. 
That's right. I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands. And it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. I'm glad you mentioned the the testing bit. So I got a, a really good question from Amanda and she wants to know about what tests are the best to determine the root cause of autoimmune disease. So for her specifically, she said that she has rheumatoid arthritis. She said she's managed it with diet since being diagnosed in 2017, but she's recently started having bizarre symptoms like stomach spasms, Morton's neuromas in her feet, swelling in the glands in her neck. And she says that doctors say the only thing related to RA are some cysts that she has on her hand, but she thinks it's all related. So she was wondering, you know, is it possible they're all related? And also what should she do for testing? So when, when let's say she came to see me and I, I take people through a detailed look at the health events in their life, you know, when the symptoms happened, when they showed up, what time, and then life events, what happened at what time, the good things, the bad things, the moves, where you lived, your exposures. And that is incredibly revealing in terms of what are, what were the triggers for your illness? What were the triggers for your flare? 
And that's the like the number one diagnostic test that I do is this very careful look at your life events, your health events, and look at the triggers. Then based on that, I will recommend some further investigations. And that's to guide what how I might tweak the supplements, the conversations we're going to have about your diet and your lifestyle. I'll tell you, it's striking in my clinical trials and also in my patients' the number of individuals, when I have these conversations about early life stress and adverse childhood experiences, we have much, much, much higher rates of adverse childhood experiences. And so getting people to acknowledge that and go back to that trauma with a trauma therapist has sometimes led to a really profound impact on their disease course and their quality of life. So looking at Everything. I wish you could, I wish we could make your mindset the approach of a lot of conventional doctors out there. Okay, one really quick rabbit hole tangent question, just rapid fire. I got so many questions. People wanted to know your thoughts on LDN. So that is a fairly safe compound to take. There are many small pilot studies showing that it's helpful in autoimmune conditions, reducing pain, improving quality of life. If your prescriber is open to prescribing it, it's certainly a very safe compound to add to your regimen. And if it benefits you, terrific. If it doesn't benefit you after three, certainly after six months, uh, I think it's safe to discontinue and realize that you're one of the non-responders. I tried it. It did not. It had no impact for me. But it, it can be you know, a, a safe, helpful compound. It's not going to be miraculous, but it may be helpful. It's, and it's worth a try. My really quick LDN story, because I've, I've been taking it for years and years. Originally, it was prescribed for GI issues. I, I do benefit from it with my sleep and my mood and everything. This was just such a moment for me realizing how the complete opposite of what you're talking about, where you see the whole patient and, and really see them and look at everything they're doing. I had to be hospitalized for anemia. And so I was talking with the doctors and LDN was on my chart. Later, I saw the paperwork written about me because I asked for it. And it said in the paperwork that basically it said that I, as the patient, had said I wasn't drinking a lot, but that I was on naltrexone. And I felt so <laughs> judged and just not seen and not understood. And I mean, it was empowering for me because I was like, okay, you really just have to have agency to, you know, know what you're taking and what you're doing and understand that doctors might not understand everything. Because <laughs> basically they thought I was lying about being an alcoholic or something. Yeah. It is a compound that's very helpful for People with substance abuse to manage their substance abuse issues. Yeah, now check zone and it's full form. It was just, I just remember that story. Well, this has been amazing. So I'm so excited about your trial. I just want to emphasize again, because when I was reading over it and promoting it to listeners, personally, I felt like the barrier for a lot of people was going to be an unwillingness to be, you know, randomized to the control diet. But now talking with you, I'm so glad we had this conversation because it sounds like, it's a win-win. Oh, yeah. If you're on a good diet, you get to stay on it. You just have to be one. And if you're on a mediocre diet, you get to be on a, on a better diet. And we'll give you tips to make your mediocre diet even better 
if you're in the controller. Awesome. Yeah. Because when I was like looking at the requirements and it said, must be willing to do the control diet. I'm going to make a note, but you can stay on your own diet in the control diet. So how can people sign up? What is the process? Yep. So let's walk through that. So we, we have a, a great little website, terrywalls.com. So T-E-R-R-Y Walls, W-A-H-L-S.com forward slash M-S study. And that will take you to a page. There's a cute little video with me telling, telling you about this study and a link to take the survey. In the survey, you're going to put in your name and demographic information and how we contact you. We then contact and you'll be on our patient registry for future studies that will, because we keep writing new protocols, new, new grants, and would like to, and some of those studies will just be survey only. So they'd be great to have. And then we'll contact you and get your consent so we can get your neurologist to verify that you've had been diagnosed with relapsing MS and that you are safe to follow either the keto diet, paleo diet, or usual diet. And because it usually works better if we contact your neurologist on your behalf, get the neurology verification form, and then my team will contact you go over the consent, go over all the study procedures, ex explain what happens, and confirm once again that you're good with coming to Iowa, you're good with being randomized to one of the three diets. And then hopefully you say, of course, yes, I want to do this. And then you get scheduled for a visit to Iowa. And sometimes we have the good fortune that I pop in and I say, Hi, how are you? Would you like to have a selfie together? We, we give a hug. You get to take a picture. It's, it's super fun. You'll see my team at month zero, month three, month 24. And you'll know that you are on a sacred mission together because, you know, we can't, I can't change the standard of care without research. I can't do research without people like all of you who are listening to this podcast who are willing to say, you know what, I'll, I'll come. And as long as you're willing to be in one of the three diets, it's it's okay if you have a good diet and you're in the control arm. That's a-okay. Because what I think will be the most interesting is, can I get people to healthy rates of aging? And if I've inspired everyone to fix their diet, because you'll do some diet questionnaires along the way, so we'll know if you have a great diet or not. And so if what I show is that I managed to get all three arms to really have a great diet, even the control arm, and that in fact they all got to healthy rates of aging. That is the result that I'm hoping for. Awesome. Well, this is amazing. Also, if you're open to it, I'd actually love to have you on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast as well and share all of this with them, reach an even broader audience. Well, thank you so much. This was absolutely incredible. I'm so grateful for everything that you're doing. The last question I ask every single guest on this show, and I I asked you this last time. I don't remember what you said. It's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So, oh, I, I do remember what you said. <laughs> what is something that you're grateful for? I'm grateful that I have my disease. You know, I'm grateful that I have trigeminal neuralgia, which is when it's turned on, it's the most horrific pain I ever experienced. Worse than childbirth, worse than uh, surgical pain, worse, worse than broken bones, and I've broken several. Because... One, it, it's taught, it taught me a lot, taught me everything. And I have basically a continuous monitor of the inflammation in my brain. 
if my face sensation's a little bit off and my pain starts, I know that my brain is inflamed, the microglia are reactive, and bad things are happening. If I have no pain and my sensation's completely normal, I know my brain's in great shape. So I am, I am so grateful for my trigeminal neuralgia, for having MS, because it's given me the gift of a purpose, of meaning, and of the opportunity to change the world. Wonderful. And you really are doing that. And I am just, again, so, so grateful for you, for your time. Everything that you're doing is just really beautiful and empowering, and it really is changing the world. So thank you so much. I'm excited. We'll get you on IF Podcast. I really look forward to to everything that you find with your study. So thank you. And thank you for all the wonderful work you are doing as well. Thank you, Terry. Have a good rest of your day. Thanks. Bye-bye now. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.